when I was in grade school, all of the ch- all of the children in my classes, we had this tradition of whenever it was somebody's birthday, they would bring cupcakes for the whole class. Now, being the bratty little kid that I was, I never understood this tradition. As far as I understood, if my mom was going to make 30 cupcakes, and the reason she was going to make those cupcakes was my birthday, then as far as I was concerned, those cupcakes belonged to me. Fortunately, I didn't get my way. But as you can imagine, being a fourth grader in my class, uh, what that would look like if I had gotten my way. You know, this kid shows up in class with a whole box of cupcakes, and you're thinking, birthday, we're going to get cupcakes today. And lunchtime comes around, you see this kid open the box, and he begins pulling out the cupcakes one by one. And slowly, all the other students start to circle him like vultures, drooling at the mouth. But surprisingly, he doesn't actually pass them out. Instead, he begins eating the cupcakes one by one right in front of the other kids. And the shop children can only look on with envy and jealousy as the greedy and gluttonous future pastor devours the cupcakes before their eyes. That's a, a recipe for disaster. Now there's a reason that we shared cupcakes on our birthday. You see, really good gifts are the ones that you share with other people. There's a reason that as <laughs> it's why <laughs> it's why you bought Crocs for everyone, right? right. <laughs> <Share your goodness. laughs> There's a reason that as you get older uh, and wiser, birthdays become far less about presents and more about spending time and having fun with the people that you love. It's always more fun when everyone gets to share in the joy of a celebration. When you love something, you want other people to love it too. When you enjoy something, you want other people to enjoy that thing also. Real joy is contagious and it's shareable, like a large bowl of chips next to an even larger bowl of guacamole. As Christians, it's important that we never forget that the coming of Jesus the Jew, the son of Abraham and the son of David was the fulfillment of promises which God made to Israel long ago. He was a Jewish Messiah for the Jewish people, a long-awaited gift of God to the Jews. But as we will see in our text today, this gift of God was always intended to be shared. He's a gift which brings joy to the whole world. To everyone who believes him. And as the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 1, the gospel of Christ is the power of salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first, and then to the Greek. Well, today is one day after Christmas, or as I like to call it, Christmas Day 2. Today in our text, we're going to pick up about a month after Christmas. We're going to meet a man named Simeon who is patiently waiting for that gift of God. And when he recognizes the gift, he praises God because it means good things for Israel and all who share in Israel's blessing. So let's pick up in Luke 2, verse 22. Luke 2, 22. 
And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, this morning we want to bless you. We want to praise you with all that we are. Lord, we are desperate to hear from you, desperate to receive your word, the very life-giving word of God that you have graciously given us. Lord, fill us with your spirit this morning. Help us to hear your word and to rejoice over your word and to give you all the glory in everything we do. Help me to preach this word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. So as I said, we're about a month after Jesus was born. This is our first point this morning, awaiting the gift. Now Mary and Joseph are God-fearing Jews. And so they go to the temple in Jerusalem, and they're actually going for two reasons. And both of these reasons are uh, their obedience to the law. First, they're going for Mary's purification. If you want to read more on what that is, you can go to Leviticus chapter 12. So what is this purification thing? Well, basically under the law, giving birth made you unclean or ritually impure. Now when you hear that, it sounds rough. Um, unclean is not a moral category. Uh, unclean is a ritual category. Being unclean is not the same thing as sin. Uh, you could be unclean if you touched a dead body, or if you got leprosy, or if you had mold in your home. If you want to go digging through Leviticus, you can find all kinds of interesting things that would make somebody unclean. And while you have your family here, uh, you know you can go digging through, and it makes some wonderful dinner table conversation. Now. If you were ritually impure or unclean, you were not permitted inside the sanctuary. Because that was a holy place. That was the place where God resides. And so you had to be purified from your impurity before you could ever approach God because God is holy. He's set apart. Well, that much remains true today. God is still holy. And though we're not under the law, we do need to be purified by the blood of Christ before we can ever approach God. He is holy and righteous, and we're not. So, under the law, to be purified, you were called to sacrifice a lamb. But lambs weren't cheap. Fortunately, under the law, if you were poor, it gave you the option of instead offering two turtle doves or pigeons. And in verse 24 of Luke 2, here we learn that was the case 
with Mary and Joseph. Isn't that interesting? The kind of people that God chooses for his purposes? So many people think today that to make Christianity compelling, uh, we need very public, famous, and powerful people to be Christians. You know, the, the Kanye's, the Chris, pa Chris Pratt's, and Bieber's. Well, when God wanted to uh, send his son into the world, he chose Mary and Joseph, four insignificant nobodies to the world. But you see, God uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And he chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Those of worldly significance, if God were to choose them, would believe that God chose them for any other reason than his glorious purposes. No one is permitted to boast in the sight of God, and that's why he chooses people like Mary and Joseph. Because when he does that, he gets the glory, and not us. Well, there's a second reason that they came to the temple that day. And if you want to read more on this, you can find it in Exodus chapter 13. Uh, and that reason is that the firstborn of every family belongs to God. And so they brought Jesus to the temple to be presented and consecrated as holy before the Lord. And this was a, a callback to the Exodus, when God delivered his people. He redeemed the firstborn of the Israelites from the angel of death at the cost of of a lamb. And here uh, we see Jesus' purpose foreshadowed. He comes to the temple and he is consecrated and redeemed in order to fulfill the law. And this is just so fascinating to me because the text has us looking backward in time. It's having us look back at the Exodus when God graciously redeemed his people Israel by his grace alone. At the cost of a Passover. But at the same time, the text has us looking forward because here at the temple, Christ is the greater Lamb of God who will die to take away the sins, not just of the firstborn of Israel, but the sins of the whole world, all who will believe in Him. All who trust in Him are washed in His blood. So Jesus' parents here are obeying the law, and they're coming to the temple, and it's at this point that we are introduced to this guy named Simeon. Uh, now, Simeon is described as a righteous and devout man who's patiently waiting for the consolation of Israel. Why did Israel need to be consoled? Well, uh, you remember our Ezra-Nehemiah series. Even though uh, Israel was God's chosen people, uh, they had repeatedly turned away from God and turned to idols. And so after centuries and centuries of God pleading with them to repent and come back to them, he eventually gave them up to judgment. The Assyrians came up and destroyed the northern kingdom. The Babylonians took the southern kingdom into captivity and destroyed the temple. Eventually the Persians conquered them and they were brought back and they lived under Persian rule, under Persian occupation for a time. But eventually the Persians were conquered by the Greeks and the Greeks were absolutely terrible to the Jews. And the Greeks were conquered by the Romans who weren't much better. And throughout all of these hundreds of years, 
the children of Israel were asking themselves this. Is God going to stay faithful to the promises that he gave us in his word? Is he going to send the promised Messiah? Is he going to console us with his Christ? Will there ever be another son of David on the throne? I want you to put yourselves in their footsteps. The monarchy has been destroyed for over 500 years at this point. It's been 400 years since God has sent them a prophet. 400 years of silence from God. With all of this bad stuff happening. And they're wondering if God still cares. And they're wondering if God will still be true to his word. And here we meet Simeon, this Jew, and he's still patiently trusting in God, knowing that God works all things according to his plan and on his timing. And he believes God's word from hundreds of years before. And he's looking forward to the coming of the Lord's Christ, the Messiah, and God rewards his faith. After all of those years... He's guided by the Holy Spirit. He comes into the temple. He sees these two strangers with their baby. And the Spirit confirms, yes, this is the Holy One of Israel. The Lord has returned to his temple. Christ has finally come. And you can imagine the joy he felt after so many years trusting in God, waiting on God, when he could see no evidence that God was at work. But that's faith, isn't it? How does Hebrews describe faith in chapter 11? Faith is confidence in what we hope for. And assurance about what? Things that are unseen. What we don't see. You see, Simeon was confident in the promises of God even though he had no clue how God was going to bring that about even though it didn't look like that was the case. And Simeon is rewarded by God as his faith is turned to sight. Can you imagine the joy in that moment as he sees Emmanuel, God, with us in his temple? I wonder this morning, do you ever struggle with faith? It can be easy to get discouraged as Christians. We know that God is working all things according to his plan, and yet sometimes this world can feel pretty wacky out there. We know that Christ reigns. We know that he will one day make all things right, and we wait patiently for, for him to return. But if, if we're honest, we look at the way things are going in this world, and sometimes we wonder if he is ever going to return. We wonder if he will keep his promises if he's really reigning over all things. A Christian like Simeon, we don't have the heavenly perspective. We don't see how all these things are going to fit together. But we can trust in the God who has repeatedly demonstrated his faithfulness over the millennia. He does everything in his own time, and he works all things according to his eternal plan. And so we can have faith. Well, we see that Simeon and others in Israel were awaiting this great gift of God. 
Now with Jesus in the temple, uh, Simeon has the opportunity to behold the gift of God for himself. So pick up with me in Luke chapter 2, verse 28. Verse 28. We'll back up just for a second. Uh, he came in the spirit of the temple when his parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. Uh, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all people a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. This is the point of the story where we recognize that we live in a very different culture than they did. Uh, Sibian is in the temple and he walks up to two complete strangers and grabs their baby. <laughs> and he beholds him and he begins praising God. In the Holy Spirit, he begins reciting God's own words back to him from the Old Testament. And his first statement, if we look at that right there in verse 29... His first statement is this, Lord, you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. He's praising God because he is finally looking at the Messiah. Uh, though he waited for what seemed like forever, he's finally looking at Christ. God kept his promises to Israel. God kept his promise to Simeon. God still cared. God still cared for Israel. Simeon is looking at the face of salvation. But the cool part is that because Simeon knows his Bible, he knows that Jesus is not just good news for Israel, but for the whole world. Uh, this little baby is the fulfillment of many prophecies, but particularly the fulfillment of a 700-year-old prophecy from Isaiah concerning a servant of the Lord. Jesus was God's plan for bringing salvation to the nations. What does he say in verse 32? That this baby is a light for revelation to the Gentiles, to the nations. Do you see the significance of this? Before Christ, God's salvation was administered almost exclusively through his chosen people, his covenant people, Israel. They were the chosen of God. They had the law, the prophets, the patriarchs, all the scriptures. Sure, anyone could join themselves to Israel, but the joy which they had in worshiping the one true God was not shared by the rest of the world. The rest of the world, as the Bible tells us, was in spiritual darkness, worshiping idols. Listen to the way Paul described the Gentiles before Christ as we saw in Ephesians 2. He says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made the two, Jew and Gentile, into one. And then in verse 18 right here we have this, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. 
You see, Simeon, in recognizing this baby, knows that God's blessings will no longer be limited to a single nation, but salvation would go to the ends of the earth. That all who trust in Christ would share the Messiah's blessing to Israel. Cupcakes for everyone. (laughs) And he knew this because he knew Isaiah's prophecy. When he, calls Christ, when he calls Christ a light for revelation to the Gentiles, he's actually citing from two different servant songs in Isaiah. There's, there's five of them total. You know the most famous one. It's Isaiah 53, the one about the suffering servant who dies uh, for the sins of others. Let's look briefly at these two examples. Uh, let's look at Isaiah 49, verses 5 and 6. We have a slide. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant. And what's the servant's purpose? To bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. Next verse. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserve of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations. And what does the light do? That my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So, this servant, according to verse 5, is formed by God from the womb for the purpose of bringing Israel back to him. That sounds familiar. And he has two jobs. One, he's to go to Israel. He's to go to those who have turned their back on God. And like a good shepherd, he's to gather the flock back to their creator. But it turns out this servant is really special. This isn't just an ordinary servant of God. There are many servants in the scriptures, but this one is unique. He's capable of not only bringing Israel back to God, but God actually makes him a light for all the nations so that they can experience God's salvation as well. Well, what does this salvation look like? Let's, let's look at the other servant song that Simeon is citing here. This is Isaiah 42. And in this one, he's using uh, imagery to describe the plight of the nations before Christ and what Christ does for them. This is the Lord talking to his servant. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. And what does this servant do? To open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. What a beautiful passage. This is what Simeon is thinking about as he's praising God in the temple that day. But this passage tells us something about the nature of humanity. We're living in bondage to sin. We're blinded to the goodness of God and trapped in a dungeon of darkness. Such is our nature in sin. 
God's word is clear that we're not basically good people, but that we are spiritually dead, that we are blind, trapped in bondage to our sin, trapped in darkness, left to ourselves. We are without God and without hope in the world. Have you ever thought about why God uses such vivid imagery to describe the, the plight of humanity? I mean, is God just trying to be dramatic here? God's trying to help us understand either what it is that we have been saved from or what it is from which we still need to be saved. The person in darkness, just think about the concept of darkness and light with me for a moment. The person in darkness will stumble along painfully until he receives light. The person in prison will languish there until she is set free. The blind person will never see unless he is healed. And here's the painful reality of spiritual darkness. You see, the person who has only ever known darkness cannot even begin to imagine what it means to walk in the light. The person born blind couldn't begin to describe a sunset to you. There's nothing more ordinary than for the spiritually dead person There's nothing more ordinary than for the spiritually dead person to be spiritually dead. It's just what they're used to. You see, on our own, we will never seek God because we are in the dark. Such is the nature of our sin. But here's the good news of the gospel that we discussed on Christmas Eve. That Jesus came into the world to seek those who could not seek him for themselves. Look at this passage again. He will be a light for those in the dark. He will be the one who sets the prisoners free, and he will give sight to the spiritually blind, all to the glory of God the Father. You see, the whole world is trapped in spiritual darkness, and this baby that Simeon is beholding is the one who will grow up and say things like this from John chapter 8. I'll say this. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Brothers and sisters, this is why Simeon is excited. All the nations can now share in Israel's joy and fellowship with God. And that was God's plan from the beginning. And it's all because of this little baby. The coming of Jesus means that whoever believes in him can be saved. And he died on the cross to make that possible. So, we've awaited the gift. We have beheld the gift. Lastly, we'll look at accepting or rejecting the gift. Look at Luke 2, verses 33 to 35. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own heart also. So that the thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. Before we close today, 
I'd like to return to the topic of cupcakes. <laughs> Let's just say that you're a student in that class that we talked about before. And on that day, it's my birthday, and I'm feeling benevolent. And I say to all the other students, I've brought cupcakes because it's my birthday, and all you have to do is come up and grab one. But here's the thing. Your mom already packed you a lunch. You've got a can of Vienna sausages and a can of Spam. The offer of much greater pleasure has been set before you. The question is which are you going to choose? Will you choose wisely? Will you choose greater pleasure? Will you stick with your gelatinous dog food masquerading as lunch? <coughs> Spiritual darkness? Or will you joyfully seize the greater pleasure of the free cupcake which has been set before you and freely offered? Simeon closes his time with Mary and Joseph and Jesus by making his own prophecy. He says that this child is appointed for the rising and falling of many in Israel. He will be a sign that is opposed. You see, when you encounter the light, when you encounter Jesus, you are forced to make a decision. And not making a decision is a decision in itself. In Jesus' day, there were many who embraced him as the Messiah and as the Son of God, and they followed him in faith. And when Christ returns, they will rise with him in eternal blessedness and life with God. But there were many more in Jesus' day who opposed him, and they stumbled and they fell. Listen, all humanity is in darkness, but when a person in darkness faces the light of the world, they have a choice to make. Come into the light or hide in the darkness. Well, John's Gospel says this about the light of the world in chapter 1. It says, The true light, Jesus, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Listen, if you are in Christ this morning, it is because while you were in darkness, in spiritual bondage, unable to help yourself, God brought you into his marvelous light. By the grace of God alone, you were born again and believed in Christ. That's a cause for celebration. Why don't you reflect on that this week? If you're struggling with gratitude, think, if you're struggling with gratitude, just think on the grace of God in your life. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. But there's still one baffling statement in that quote we just saw from John chapter 1. It said that he came to his own. The Jewish Messiah came to Israel and his own people did not receive him. 
I wonder why that is. Simeon clearly understood who this Jesus guy was. Well, Jesus says something interesting about the rejection of the light in chapter 3. Let's take a look at that. And what caused people to reject Jesus in that day is what causes people to reject him in this day. He says this, and this is the judgment. The light has shone into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come into the light, lest his works should be exposed. Christ is the promised light of the world from Isaiah. And it is through him that we can come to God. But many reject Christ because to come to Christ means two things. Number one, it means that you are exposed. No one knows what is in the darkness until a light shines on it. When you encounter Christ, you enter into the light and you are completely exposed. All of your sins, all of your guilt and your shame, all the things that you don't want anyone else to know about you. Maybe even things you didn't realize were sins. And listen, it's painful to be exposed to have to face the reality of who we really are apart from God. But... Jesus died so that you could be forgiven and cleansed of all of that. Yes, the light exposes us, but Jesus can cover us. He can clothe us in the Holy Spirit. Our sins are great, but his mercy is greater. And it is his joy, he tells us, to bring us into his kingdom. Secondly, people reject Christ because, as Jesus pointed out, they love the darkness more than the light. They love the things that God hates. And so they reject the one thing that can make them better. And they cannot love God. Well, Jesus calls all of us to make a choice. My hope for you this morning is that you have already freely received the cupcake. Are you following Jesus as your Savior and Lord? Or has your love of this world and your fear of exposure kept you out of the law? I don't say this to any of you to shame you. I speak as one sinner to another, as one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Come into the light. Come to Jesus. Come to the one who loved sinners enough to die for them. For them. Jesus was the promised Jewish Messiah. But his death and resurrection means that we Gentiles can also come to God.